Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. I am one of the hosts for the show today and every day. The traffic anchor for Denver 7 News talking on a brand new, well, I guess not a new microphone, but with a new microphone stand that they have brought into our little sweat box here. It is lovely. And I am Jason Looper. Yeah, you don't look like a rando stand-up comedian holding a mic stand in the audio booth anymore, which is convenient. <laughs> yeah. I'm a pedestrian advocate, Joseph Peters, and today I learned that wearing socks to bed can help regulate your body temperature and your blood pressure. Oh, really? Do you wear socks to sleep? I do not. Neither do I. That would bother me to no end. It's tremendously weird. Yes, Science. I would think so. Now, what kind of socks? Are we talking about full wool socks, dress socks, the white tube socks? How about ankle socks? Unfortunately, it did not specify the type of socks. I will say if you wear dress socks to sleep, you are a monster. <laughs> monster? A monster. That's, that's awful. That's pretty strong. A monster? Yep. Because there's all kinds of different types of socks. Different types of monsters, too. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so... And airlines are getting really strict with their their rules here, Joseph. We've talked about some of those airline rules about the pets you can bring on board and other, uh, well, issues with the airlines. Hamsters. Now they are getting so strict that they say stripping naked, watching porn, and hugging a female flight attendant is not allowed. Bummer. Shortly after takeoff, a 20-year-old university student going from Kuala Lumpur to Bangladesh began to exhibit disturbing behavior, they say. At about 10,000 feet, the man took off all his clothes, started watching porn on his laptop. After getting completely naked, the man then put his clothes back on at the request of the airline crew. But soon after, the man went to the restroom and tried to hug a female crew member. When that didn't go well, this guy tried to hug another female crew member later on in the flight. But he became aggressive. And attacked the head crew man, uh, the head crew member there. After attempts were made to calm him down, did they tie him down? Yes. Oh, they most certainly did. With the help of some other passengers, they sure did. They restrained him with a piece of cloth. Good. They um, put it around his hands. Usually, they, I think some don't they carry zip ties on airplanes now? I believe they do. Yeah. I'm just saying, how far along in the getting naked process did he get before somebody raised the red flag? I think he got all the way off. I, that's mm. the, the reports that I read that he was pretty much naked, and it doesn't take a lot of time to get naked. I could say you can get naked in under sixty seconds. Yeah. I mean, especially if you're just wearing sweats. I don't know what he was wearing. Because like, like me, right now I have my tie and my button-down shirt and my slacks. For me, it's always I get tripped up on the socks. Yeah. So socks get <laughs> Well, maybe you just feet. keep the socks on, there just like go. you do when you go to bed. There you go. The man was arrested when the aircraft landed and was escorted off of the plane by authority. So apparently that's not allowed on airplanes anymore. It's certainly not a happy ending. There are a couple, <laughs> mainly two ways that airlines get passengers on their planes, right? Yes. There's, there's the standard way. Usually, when you have a seat assigned, because you, you already have your seat number and you, you already know where you're going to sit. It's right there on your ticket. And then they give you like a zone number or maybe a zone letter, that sort of thing. And then when your number is called, you go up to the gate, agent, and they take your ticket and, and you get onto the jetway and, and, and then you look for your seat when you get on the plane. Well, I guess I should say in the plane. If you're on the plane, it's going to be a little too windy. You probably want to be in the plane and not on the plane. Correct. Even the cargo hold is better than on the plane. Yes. The other way that you uh, board is the Southwest Airline Way, where you get in uh, base boarding A, B, or C, where they have the 
lying there, and it's basically a scramble to get on the plane and the seat that you want when you get in in the plane. There's really those two different ways. Mm-hmm. Well, United Airlines decided they want to try a new boarding procedure that they hope is going to create a better passenger experience. It's being tested right now at their hub in Los Angeles. And according to a fact sheet issued, issued through United, under this trial system, there's going to be two lanes. Group one, they'll board through lane one. And group two will board through lane two. Sounds pretty straightforward. Okay. Now, the remaining groups, three through five, will then board through lane two when they're called. And groups one and two may continue to board through lane one at any time. So basically, the passengers are going to be guided to their lane by signage in the gate area. And they say the latest method resolves around passengers' miles-plus premier status or group. So they're really catering to the business flyer. Mm-hmm. Because I think some of the airlines like United, Delta, American, the big ones, are really going to be catering to the heavy-duty flyers. While some of the discount airlines, Southwest, Frontier, Spirit, Allegiant, that sort of thing, are going to be going more for the family a la carte flyers, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So even with this different system, the elite customers are still going to be able to board first. Pre-boarding are still going to be available to select customers, like with those with disabilities, those you know people with kids and that, and that sort of thing. Right. But United thinks that there are multiple benefits to this new boarding system. They say thanks to the simplified lanes, passengers aren't going to be lining up at the gate prior to boarding. Kind of like they do at Southwest. We talked about that. Mm. But you've seen that. You go up to the, you go up and and you know that your uh, zone number is going to be called, and then you have a group of what thirty or forty people all jockeying to get up there and get your ticket read so you can get on the jetway. See, but I think the Southwest method works the best because everybody can go to a part of the plane that's not too crowded at the beginning, and then everybody at the back end can just fill in the blanks instead of everybody looking for assigned seats. And maybe, you know, people are smart, but they're also stupid, and they can get lost along the way to assigned (laughs) seats. Well, yeah, and that's why Southwest says they can uh, get their planes uh, cleared and then loaded faster and therefore, they are spending less time there at the gates and more time in the air, and they can actually do more flights. And, you know, the only problem with the Southwest lines is you always wind up, or at least I do, looking around at everybody else and trying to figure out who's cheating the line system. Because I don't believe anybody, <laughs> they're just yeah. using the beep boop device. You know what I mean? They're not looking at A21, A22, A23, no, A24. No, no, no. They're not. They're, because the gate agent, they're just scanning you through. And if you're in the wrong thing, then they'll just send you through anyway. They already scanned you. They basically have to at that point, right? We, we took a flight in the Dominican Republic where they literally called you one at a time. A1, A2, A3, and read your ticket one by one. First of all, much more efficient than I thought it would be, but B, no fraud. There you go. We like no fraud. Additionally, United says the smaller group sizes will be enforced for certain flights. So that, in turn, will equate to a less crowded boarding experience And United believes that fewer lines will create more space and easier access to the boarding door for customers exiting from the plane from the previous flight and during pre-boarding. But I I, usually, like, except like in an elevator, but all the people that are coming out of the plane, they get out first, and then that's pretty much clear for the next five, ten minutes. And then they start letting people on the plane because there's like a sweep done, a couple of sweeps done to clean up some of the trash and, and just straighten it up a little bit. Did you have a bad experience on an elevator where somebody tried to get yeah, off before? Yeah, you Yeah, all there? the time. You get at the, and then the people are just you're you're trying to get off the elevator, and then, meanwhile there's a, a rush of people trying to get in. Right, it's, it's annoying. Like, it's just like anything else. Let people come off first, and then you enter. Now I usually don't use the elevator in this building, 
uh, except if I'm going upstairs to the fifth floor to go steal some of their uh, green tea. But it's like some of the bigger buildings around town that, that you see that, where, where they have elevators for like floors one through ten and then twenty through forty-five. And Well, so we live on the eighth floor. And I will confess, I just don't ever expect to see anybody on the elevator. So I am coming out no matter what is coming in the other direction. <laughs> I also read on a travel blog that some of the frequent flyers on United are now complaining about the degree uh, in the quality of their complimentary pillows and covers. First world flyer problems, right? Ugh. I didn't think that airline pillows or blankets really existed anymore. I, I didn't think they, they were around. Even in first class. Well, that's because they don't try to advertise it as uh, much anymore. See, that's the thing. I, I never fly that, so what do I know? I, I mean, I'm just a commoner, basically, who stays in the back of the plane, Joseph, with the rest of the peasant class. That's me. <laughs> I always thought the most efficient way to board, though, would be to start at the back of the plane and work your way forward. So they should call all out the seats that are in the back, the back couple of rows, and that way it fills in just like you would a bottle with water right fill it in from the bottom all the way to the top and that way you don't have people waiting for you to put your uh overhead bags up there or get jostled or sit you know situated whatever you know what's funny that sounds like the best way to do it but they, they've done research recently like within the last five years that proves that that southwest method even though it seems counterintuitive to just have the free-for-all actually is the best way to get things boarded in terms of speed now in terms of flyer happiness maybe not always that the most fun thing because you do wind up with like the last two people on the plane looking for that open Mm -hmm. seat but in terms of just getting somewhere that's not crowded and getting into a seat quickly random is better yeah but i mean even if those big shot first class people want to get on first and then sit there and watch all the peasants and commoners get on the plane as they're sipping their wine and eating their complimentary peanuts that's that's fine. You would, they can do that. You would think that they would want to sit in the comfortable seats in the waiting area and yeah. watch the peasants board the plane. Let them go first. Well, I would think that. Yeah, you would think that too. Or they're sitting in their uh, sky lounge. I've always wanted to go to a sky oh, lounge. Oh, they're they're very that's nice. Some are very nice. Um, but but if they're going to get on there first, make them do it like twenty minutes ahead of everybody else. <laughs> you know, like really early, so they're sitting on there for a long time. Yes, that's maybe Cruelty that makes first it class. a little bit more fair. It, do, it doesn't seem that hard, but I guess I don't. Know, the airlines have to deal with all these suits that fly all the time, mm-hmm. and and they're the ones who are paying these exorbitant fares at times. And so, so there you go. Even though spring is on the horizon for most of us, Joseph, it feels like spring around here. Yes, it is still winter in parts of the country, especially along the East Coast, where they're getting pounded by lots of new snow. And if you hate driving in the snow as much as an Arizonan. Arizonian, yep. however you're going to call them. I think you nailed it. A robot can now do it for you. A company from Finland says they have developed a first fully autonomous, uh, autonomous car that can drive in the snow while it's snowing. Where has this been tested? Finland. Because they're pretty good at the, you know winter stuff. <laughs> okay, seems legit. Yes. So the company retrofitted a Volkswagen Touring. Got it up to 25 miles an hour on some snowy roads without any lane markings, and they said it could have gone faster without any issues. Most other self-driving cars, they have these light detection uh, systems, which uses the light from a pulsed laser laser, uh, la- uh, laser to measure the distance between the objects, so that's how it doesn't run into things. But it doesn't work well in snow, whiteout conditions, that sort of thing, because it, it just messes with that radar. So this new sec- technology, they say it's different. They, it's uniquely outfitted to uh, use when turbulent snow is even affecting the uh, the drive. 
And they rely on the radar, three forward-facing lasers, a mix of cameras, antennas, and sensors, plus a rear-mounted light detection system for good measure. Now, doesn't that sound smarter than most of the humans you know? Yes, it does. (laughs) But we still allow them to go drive in the snowstorms. So I think there's some good old-fashioned hold-my-beer moments when they were testing this thing, don't you? <laughs> let me let me sit in this death machine. Yeah, go ahead. It, wheel it's me snowing like the crazy snow. there. Let's go ahead and drive this autonomous car right down the road. Uh, science says that we'll be able to make this turn. Okay. All right. They're not ready to hit the Colorado snowy roads yet uh, because the current street maps aren't accurate enough, they say, to ensure a completely seamless ride. But they do think they'll be selling these things, uh, or at least the underlying software that processes the sensor data to a company to be named later, I'm sure. There are other companies working on similar technology. They're just farther behind in the process in this place from Finland. And the company believes that autonomous technology will be introduced to cars over time, as we've said. And eventually, in 20 or 30 years, then we'll see fully autonomous cars on the roads. But I think like when they have these... Cars from Google or Apple or wherever, right? The ones that are fully autonomous now. That that's the leap. We we we're going to have little parts of the technology introduced every couple of years until it's finally we're not driving anymore. I want you to think of your favorite like A list musician, right? And think about the moment where they were playing. Bon Jovi. There you go. So Bon Jovi used to play little <laughs> concerts all over. That's New for Jersey. my wife. Do his thing, and eventually somebody came along, saw the art that Bon Jovi was making with the guitar, and signed him to a huge deal. Now, I want you to think about this small room of scientists in Finland who have been working to try to figure out how to make this car drive in snow by itself for years. And they've probably done it on like a shoestring budget, and they are about to get Bon Jovi money oh, they're for getting this paid. software. Yes, they are. They are going to be on top of the world. This is the, this is the last time they have to work right. if they figure this out. And good for them because I, I'm sure that there's a lot of recreation to be doing in Finland. No kidding. Like skating fjords visiting sweden (laughs) moving to the united states uh they aren't (laughs) i i I don't know uh so have you ever taken a bus on a long trip like a greyhound or uh one of those turismos rapidos that go between here and el paso i mean we're in my wheelhouse now all right well because i have yes uh i remember one memorable trip from atlanta to statesboro uh, outside Savannah there to oh, get see, back I took, to college. I went from Savannah all the way back up to Burlington. Oh, that's a long trip. That is, that is a, you wind up spending the night overnight in either New York or, or uh, no, it's usually New York. Now, for most travelers, taking a, a state-to-state or a city-to-city bus journey, it, it's really the least desirable option on the transportation ladder. I mean, you have the airplanes, you have your own car, you have trains. Yes. So I think buses are, are somewhere down behind uh, maybe walking or uh, taking a moped. I would put it slightly ahead of walking for state-to-state trips. But, I mean, buses is all the fun of driving, only you don't drive. You still get stuck in traffic, and you're riding with 70, 80 of your closest friends, most of whom smell. And Yeah, because they're usually they're dirty, they're crowded, they, they have dirty bathrooms. Uh, like you said, they get stuck in traffic. They bump and sway. They're typically slow. But, but Greyhound and Megabus Express, so those, are, those are the two companies, the big yep. ones. I, it, I mean, I don't think there's a company outside of Greyhound at this point. There are a couple that do these trips like from here to El Paso. Um, I, there are two different, I think, bus lines that do that, or maybe from here to Los Angeles as well. They Mostly for um, 
the Hispanic market? Well, and the funny thing about that industry is even the, the smaller regional ones, Greyhound typically has some sort of hand in that cookie jar, too. And sometimes they have Wi-Fi on these buses or electrical outlets. I will say, taking the bus from Boston to Burlington... Having the electrical outlet and the Wi-Fi on the bus made it so much more enjoyable. But the really four buses are really for those people on an extremely tight budget who either don't have a car or need a way to get from place to place. But that may all be changing thanks to sleeper buses. Tell me more. Sleeper buses. A new service called Cabin is offering lie flat sleeper buses that drive overnight between Los Angeles and San Francisco. That's where they're starting this service. They call these cabin buses a moving hotel, and that trips in either direction leave at about 11 o'clock at night. They arrive at 7 o'clock in the morning, and these cabin sleeper buses feature cubicles on each side of an aisle stacked too high. Nope. And they're equipped with full foam mattresses and bedding. The cubicles are 75 inches long, 25 inches high, and 26 to 31 inches wide. All right, so 25 inches is 2 feet. Okay, that would probably get me a little bit more than shoulder to shoulder. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are 75 inches high. I am 64 inches, so I would have 10 inches on either side of my feet and head. Yes. So they're actually not because I'm I'm six two six three with it, the afro. This literally sounds like a bunch of prison cots stacked on top of each other and put on an 18 wheeler. Pretty close. They have their individually controlled air conditioning oh, in oh. each one. I take it all back. They have electrical outlets, so you can plug in your gadgets. They have a privacy light, and they have these shades as well, uh, and USB ports. Mm. So the vertical space is so limited, though, that you because it's only 25 inches high. So you're, as you're laying down, you really if you, if you try to sit up, you're going to bonk your head up on, on the roof or the ceiling of this little cubicle. Mm-hmm. So... You can only basically lie back and maybe have a little bit of room. Maybe if you're on your stomach, you can do some work on a laptop or read something on your tablet, right? So, But if you wanted to be more vertical, you have to get get out of there. I mean, there's, there's no other way around it. I Can we expense the station for us to go take a cabin from L.A. to San Francisco? <laughs> we can try. Cabin buses also have these small lounge areas that are used before and after sleeping. So these cabin buses which it calls a moving hotel, also provide onboard snacks, a restroom, and Wi-Fi. Uh, the fare ranges, depending on the date, from $85 to $115 one way. They don't allow kids under 10 on the buses, and kids between 10 and 16 need to be with an adult. So I couldn't take my two kids since they're both under 10. And they say they do not allow co-occupancy, if you know what I mean. No hookups on the cabin bus. So, that well, yeah. Well, I guess you could hook, well, I guess not, because there's not really <laughs> enough room in there. And, and they say the individual sleeping cabin, they want to keep them for individuals and not have two people sharing one, either sleeping or recreating, if you will, uh, under any circumstance to ensure safety and comfort is what they say. They can't allow any hanky-panky to go on. Now can they? So a travel writer tried out this bus, Damn. and he said he found everything to be ship-shape as advertised. He also found, however, that sleeping wasn't easy due to the constant highway curves and bumps. They say they have the same high-quality hospital element. They say they have the same high-quality hospitality elements that you expect at a luxury hotel. They have the, the cleaning service, cleans the entire vehicle, makes the beds, changes the linens, all that kind of thing. 
um, for every single trip. But still, I would think you would hear so much noise and be stopping, going, turning, bumping that it would probably be, and this is something that you're used to a lot or, or, or you can easily sleep while somebody else is driving, that, that it would, might be distracting. I would think that, so I think you need to do it once, like midday, when it's very bright outside, when it's very difficult to sleep because it's so sunny out. And then you need to do it a second time, hammered, at three in the morning and see if it's easier to fall asleep under those circumstances. And, and paying $115 for a trip that you can probably on Southwest or Frontier, one of the discount airlines, get probably between L.A. and San Francisco for 50 to $75. I mean, you could drive and fill up twice for the same price. Yeah, but it, I mean, it doesn't initially sound like it's a value option for me. I mean, the $115 bus fare, and that's just one way. It covers an overnight accommodation, I guess, that you would get if you stayed at a really budget place for 100 bucks. But most hotels now are going to be at least $150, La Quinta's and all that. I mean, they're going to be $150. So I guess you save money in that. You're not having to drive overnight. You have somebody else driving for you, and I guess maybe you'll get a couple of uh, a couple hours sleep. Right. It's a solution searching for a problem. Yeah. Like, congratulations, you can sleep on your commute from L.A. to San Francisco that nobody makes regularly. I guess this, this there could be a couple of routes that this might be feasible for, at least from a scheduling standpoint. You know, New York, Washington, maybe Boston, uh, Philly, mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, places in the Northeast, I guess. Um, but anywhere that would be about anywhere from seven to ten hours apart. I, well, I don't know, man. I just can't imagine sleeping on. I, I just can't imagine sleeping on this bus. No, I couldn't either. I, and, and really, whether the concept will succeed remains open. Uh, that's a question. I, I don't know if it's feasible. If it's feasible money-wise, if it's feasible, you know, financially for these for these for this company, and to whether get enough people to to use the dang service. I don't know. Preach on. There you go. Well, coming up, we're gonna go to the mailbag. That's right. We have. A letter that came into the, imagine this, the Driving You Crazy podcast Gmail account. That's right. We're going to go to the mailbag and answer that question for that listener. That and so much more as the Driving You Crazy podcast continues. If it's driving you crazy, it is driving us crazy. The mailbag is next on the Driving You Crazy podcast. I'm Molly Hendrickson, and you're listening to the Driving You Crazy podcast with Jason Luber. Why should people watch the Denver 7 Morning Show? Because we're funny. Well, at least we think we're funny, right? We make ourselves laugh, so we're hoping by we laughing, you laugh. Is that English? I don't know, but... I think you should also watch the Denver 7 Morning Show because Jason wears really short ties. He, he, I mean, they're normal size ties, but when he ties it, it's really short. It looks like a little cloud tie. And he's kind of a big guy, so it's, it's fun. You got to tune in and see that. Lisa Hidalgo, only on Denver 7. The Driving You Crazy podcast. I am an avid listener of this. Every uh, week, one day a week on my way home, this is the first thing I put on. This is why I love the Driving You Crazy podcast. You have Jason Luber who gets so angry about minor things uh, sometimes. 
Uh, but he brings a, a real attention to some of these things that the rest of us may not notice on the roads. And he finds uh, crazy stories uh, from all over the world about how they handle their traffic problems. So it's always fascinating to listen to Jason and Joseph talk traffic on the Drive, Driving You Crazy podcast. Uh, love it. One of my top favorite podcasts, and I listen to a lot of them. Nicole Brady, only on Denver 7. Welcome back to the world-famous and trucker-friendly Driving You Crazy podcast. No better way to spend eight hours than with your best friends, Jason and Joseph. That's right, because as you're rolling down the interstate, uh, you know, like you're smoking the bandit, eastbound and down, loaded up and trucking, we're going to do what they say can't be done. (laughs) This is the podcast you want to listen to, because you have a lot of time to go from, well, you're not really going to listen from regional station to local station out there in the plane and then people would listen to the xm Sirius radio that's fine but if you're driving through utah there's nothing else to listen to so why not give us a try that's right and we here joseph uh have in my hand can you hear that <clears throat> that that is, that is paper that is paper in the form of a letter that was printed from an email <laughs> so i've just killed a tree to do that for you uh it was sent to the show's email account aptly named Driving you crazy podcast at gmail.com. It's from Jeff somewhere out there on the roads, but he was driving in Colorado when he decided to uh, ask me this question. And Jeff says, I'm a truck driver. In Colorado, we can go up to 85,000 pounds, but trucks over 80,000 pounds are not allowed on the interstates. We must stay on secondary roads. This is a, in all caps, stupid law. That's correct. Heavy trucks, some with hazardous chemicals, routinely go through towns in school zones and hospital zones. The state trucking associations have been trying for years to change this law. Please talk about this as it is unsafe for the people. So let's do that. Go on. Let's talk about this. Well, thank you, Jeff, for the letter. First of all, thanks for listening to the podcast. And here's really the issue, Joseph. The interstate highway regulations are controlled by the United States Congress, not individual states. But what makes this federal-state weight conundrum problem even more confusing is the states are still playing a role in what the load limit is for each state on their federal interstate highways. We'll get to more on that in just a second. Now, there's a federal set of standards that specify the maximum weight that's allowed on federal-funded highways. It includes the interstates and national network of highways. And that way, there's a standard set of rules that truck drivers can follow that are common across the country. Now, the national gross weight limit is set at 80,000 pounds. There's also bridge law, which restricts the spacing and weight of axle groupings to protect the bridges uh, from being damaged. Now, the longer and more axles basically a truck has, the more weight it can carry. So in 1991, Congress passed the Intermodal Surface Transportation Efficiency Act. It's a mouthful for you. And that put a freeze on the load weight limits and truck configurations that were in place in each state at that time. So the states with more generous load limits before the act was signed are allowed to keep their higher limits in place after the act took effect, even on the interstate and U.S. highways. So in the case of Colorado, our interstate weight limit at that time 
was 80,000 pounds, and it's been frozen at that level for the past 27 years. Other states at the same time had a higher weight limit allowed on their interstates, so they've been allowed to continue letting trucks roll down the interstates with loads heavier than 80,000 pounds. Right. So basically the federal law was put in place so the truckers wouldn't have to worry about different sets of rules when you cross the border from Utah to Colorado to Kansas. And what in effect has happened here at the local level is that they are still having to deal with different sets of rules in when you cross from Utah to Colorado to Kansas. Because some of the states that allow the higher weight limits on federal interstate highways, they include Michigan, with a theoretical maximum weight of 164,000 pounds, and that depends on the number of axles they have. Maine has a weight limit of 100,000 pounds on their interstates, while neighboring New Hampshire has a 99,000-pound limit. State laws in New York allow for trucks to carry up to a gross weight of 117,000 pounds. The highest weight limit state is South Dakota, with basically no gross weight limit and no limit on the number of axles you can put on a truck. So agricultural products are commonly driven in South Dakota on the interstates with gross weights exceeding 170,000 pounds, double, more than double, what we allow here in Colorado. And frankly, an insane amount of weight. That is a lot of weight. Yes. Now, I talked to Greg Fulton. I've talked to Greg in the past about other transportation issues when I was working at KOA Radio. I, I even worked with him on the whole auto sock thing. Uh, it was a time when AutoSock was trying to become a different, another traction control device. Mm-hmm. And I did a whole story on the AutoSock, and eventually it became, after my story, a, another traction control device that was allowed in place of chains on I-70 for truckers or for passenger cars, however, you, whatever the case may be. So I talked to Greg Fulton. He's the president of the Colorado Motor Carriers Association, and he tells me, There have been efforts made to modify or remove that 1991 freeze, but those efforts have been pretty much unsuccessful in Congress. He says, we believe that it would be in the best interest of all motorists, along with businesses in our state, if trucks could carry and operate at 85,000 pounds on the interstate. Those Those highways, he says, are better designed for heavier weights as well as truck traffic, and it could reduce excess mileage associated with using alternate routes to the interstates. And which could also reduce both energy use, emissions use, uh, fuel use, all that kind of thing. And many truckers, like you, say that the current 80,000-pound limit is is really results in some trucks being lighter than they really need to be. You could pack them heavier. You could pack them more full. And that many of the trucks are running at a little bit more than half full because of this weight limit. Mm-hmm. You might have a good load, but you can only fill the truck half full. And then you have a half-empty truck there. Because you're going to be over the weight limit if you carry more stuff. Uh, That creates, they say, economic efficiencies, needing more trucks to deliver all those lighter loads. Which may actually be a good thing, keeping more truck drivers employed. Exactly right. That's a ridiculous argument, but it's about (laughs) the only one you can make. Now, there have been attempts by some members of Congress to increase the federal weight limit to either 91,000 pounds or even 97,000 pounds. But all those bills have uh, failed to be passed. And, of course, the states are always free to keep the higher weight limits in place on their state roads that they finance themselves. But most of the truckers use interstates. Most of the truckers use the other um, U.S. highways. And so even putting higher weight limits like on Colorado roads at uh, 85,000 pounds, it doesn't really help when you're trying to get most of the loads down the interstates. Right. So Fulton says, in regard to the concern that you have about truckers uh, hauling 
hazardous loads over 80,000 pounds through small towns. He says the fact is that carriers transporting hazardous materials are restricted to specific routes for those materials, and by no means do I see these shipments being diverted through small towns or locations on other routes they, unless they were permitted to do so. He tells me that the interstates tend to be the primary route for hazardous materials, except during pickups and deliveries or going through the Eisenhower Tunnel when it's during a snowstorm when they have Loveland Pass closed down. So bottom line, basically, it's going to take an act of Congress there to overrule a previous act of Congress before these weight limits on the interstates are increased. It seems logical that they would increase the weight limits at, at this time. We have better asphalt. We have better roadways. We have better ways to make roadways. Uh, they can handle the extra weight, and so why not increase the weight limit even up to, let's say, 97,000 pounds? Well, you did make the classic mistake of using the words logic and Congress in the same sentence and expecting it to be a factual sentence. <laughs> right. That is the problem, isn't it? Yes, it is. Logic and Congress. Well, logic isn't the problem. It's Congress that's yep, the problem. Yep, yep, yep. So there you go, Jeff. Thanks for uh, writing an email. If you ha- have a, a question that you want answered or, or you just want to weigh in on whatever, you could always throw it to, to the Driving You Crazy podcast at gmail.com address, and we'll uh, we'll see what we can do for you. Please, please tell us we're wrong. We don't hear enough of that. <laughs> exactly. And speaking of trucks and truckers, uh, I was sent in my email recently a survey from the American Transportation Research Institute, and they're all about truckers, and they just finished putting together a list of what truck drivers are most concerned about. They sent me the list of the top five driver concerns, and here they are. The number one concern by truck drivers is, drumroll please, the shortage of truck drivers across the country. Mm. See, this is another example of why not make heavier loads available, fuller trucks, need fewer truck drivers, and then you can actually carry all the stuff that we need to have carried. There you go. Or we wait for the Hyperloop. The latest estimate from the American Trucking Association has the driver shortage getting to about 174,000 drivers by 2026. And you think that's a long way out? That's only eight years away. Eight years away, we're going to be almost 200,000 truck drivers short. It feels like much further away than that. Doesn't it, though? Current truck drivers think that having a graduated commercial driver's license program will uh, will attract younger drivers to the profession. I wonder how many of those openings will be filled with self-driving trucks, though. Probably since those are online already, uh, they're going to be becoming uh, more and more prevalent on some of the highways, I think, probably within the next 10 years. Oh, I would say, and it could be even quicker than that. It really depends on how fast Congress would like to move. (laughs) Number two on the list of the top concerns is the electronic device mandate. There was a lot of talk about the EDM and how it's affecting a lot of the smaller uh, companies and getting on board with. See, many of the concerns surrounding these EDL mandates come from the uh, lack of uh, the flexibility in the hours of service rules. Basically, in its simplest form, it's an electronic logging device. Mm-hmm. So the guys used to have to do it on paper and show their logs and go through the wait stations and all that stuff, take mandatory rest periods. Um, so these ELDs, the, the electronic uh, re- record, basically, they, re- they, they electronically record the driver's record of duty status, which replaces the paper logbook that they already use. So there have been some issues with those electronic devices rather than the paper devices. And these hours of service rules is the, really the third concern for these drivers because they want to have more flexibility in how drivers split up their driving 
between on-duty and rest time. So the current rule specifies that the driver using the sleeper in their rig must take at least an eight-hour consecutive hour, uh, eight-hour consecutive uh, time frame in the sleeper, plus a separate two hours in either the sleeper, berth, or off-duty, or any combination of the two, to get their mandatory rest. So about ten hours of rest there. Many in the industry believe, though, with the additional flexibility, drivers will be able to rest when they're tired, and then be able to keep on going when they're when they're feeling fine. It would give them the opportunity to adjust their driving schedules to avoid maybe some of the worst congestion and worst choke points and and keep their trucks on the road longer while still getting uh, enough rest. I, just speaking personally, I don't need some cracked-out, caffeinated truck driver on the road for 22 hours straight, and that's exactly what you're opening the door to if you loosen up the hours of service requirements. Well, and I think that's probably what th- – that's why in Congress they'll, they'll never change these hour service rules – um, and they'll have these mandatory rest periods to make sure that the drivers aren't doing it. And the electronic uh, device mandate really keeps a closer record of this stuff. And, and the drivers that were fudging some of this. And that's why the electronic logs are a problem, right? Because now you can't just make up what hours you were on the road and what hours you weren't on the road. Somebody is actually watching you that entire time. Exactly. So everything is going electronic, but they're usually getting watched anyway because of the GPS devices they have in these rigs, and they're being tracked uh, by the fleet. And so you have some dispatcher somewhere that's tracking all the trucks in, uh, in the entire fleet, and they know exactly where they are, how long they're resting, and, and they can look back on the log and, and see, all right, you were driving from this time to this time, you were stopped from this time to this time, and so maybe they can... Uh, uh, right. I think. I mean, I think it's, at some point you run into the due diligence problem and how much of those dispatchers really want to make sure that the rules are being followed. So the fourth issue in the survey for truck drivers is a lack of safe, available truck parking. They say the growing scarcity of available truck parking creates a dangerous and costly situation for truck drivers who are often forced to drive beyond allowable hours of service rules or park in undesignated and in many times unsafe locations. I see them sometimes parked over here off of Castle Pines Parkway to I-25. There's a nice wide uh, exit there. You'll see a lot of truckers overnight. At least because I'm coming to work at 3 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. So I see him mostly parked outside the city limits uh, on the wide uh, exit or entrance ramps where they have plenty of space. And you can see all their lights on, so you you can see, obviously, the rig. Um, But then you know they're in there trying to get rest. They just don't know have any other place to pull over. Right. And keeping drivers in the industry rounds out the top five trucking industry issues. While related to the driver shortage, driver retention... It's a whole separate issue on the annual list of trucking industry concerns. As driver turnover was high in 2017, many motor carriers have begun to compete with one another. uh, And they're using sign-on and stay-on bonuses. Other carriers are focused on uh, safety performance and online delivery bonuses as a way to improve their driver retention numbers. And interestingly enough, the interstate weight issue did not make the top five. However, I think it would be probably in the top ten. Mm. of issues for truck drivers. And I've said for a long time, I think I could be a truck driver. Yes. I um, I would hate driving through downtown areas, though. That would frustrate me. Um, I would hate to have to be on a constant lookout for dumb drivers in cars that are cutting in front of you, especially during periods of heavy traffic or rush hour traffic, that sort of thing. Right. I, I mean, I just can't imagine being in bumper-to-bumper traffic in one of those big trucks and having to get from one lane to the other when it's that tightly packed. I, I would hate to have. I, I would hate the way that some drivers, especially uh, the little car drivers, treat 
truck drivers as second class citizens just for driving a truck. Uh, I, I would hate to, yeah. yeah, I would hate to drive in the snow and the ice and chain up in a snowstorm. Oh, that's got to. Have you ever seen that? Those guys that are chaining up on I seventy, if they're pulled over at Georgetown or wherever, that is the worst. You have these cold chains. Your gloves are wet, and it's just. It's it, just awful. It's rugged. I think it's one of the manlier things you can do to chain up a truck in sub-freezing, snowy conditions. I might like the isolation. Uh, there, there, Obviously, there'd be a lot less drama and office gossip to deal with. I mean, there'd probably still be some, but there'd be a lot less of that to deal with. Well, less Lisa Hidalgo, too. Oh, man, that would be the biggest benefit right there. You kidding me? Uh, I'd like to see the country. It's a great way to see the country. Uh, I'd be listening to podcasts all the time, books on tape. You could probably learn a whole lot. You could probably take maybe some online classes that do all audio stuff, and you could probably learn a whole lot, maybe get a, a degree of some sort. Right. You might even, uh, you could learn in like three other languages. We could broadcast this podcast in four languages instead of one. Yeah, I wouldn't have to worry about wearing a suit every day and a tie every day. In fact, I could wear the same clothes for days on end. And you might even do that. And I probably would. I don't know how I would smell after days on end, but... And, and if you're looking for a job right now, I would suggest going the truck driver route. It's really not that bad. I mean, there's tons and tons of driving jobs. I So uh, I, I look at ZipRecruiter now and then. Then you'll see it on the list of the job board there. It's full of pages and pages and pages of truck driving jobs. Not just over-the-road, long-haul stuff, but also city jobs. You get a CDL, you get a uh, commercial license, and, and off you got. You, you will basically have a job, a decent job, for the rest of your life. Goodness Speak gracious. of the devil. Hey! <laughs> what you working on there, Jace? We were just talking we were about just you, talking buddy. about how great it would be if I was a truck driver, and and one of the benefits would be not having to work with you. You didn't. <laughs> That's a direct quote. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me right now? I came to ask if you had um, one of those little connectors I could put from my headphones to my phone. Oh, great. The I dongle. Oh, <laughs> you mean because of that's the, uh, oh, the iPhone deal. Which I hate. Do you oh, that one? is so, I do have one. Can I borrow it? Y- y- if you want to go to my house. Oh. It's sitting on my nightstand right now. Taking this microphone from Hosef over here. <laughs> Listen to me, Rude. you. I, yeah, that is one of the dumbest things. They they want you to go to the Bluetooth, but that's, it just put back the jack. We're not there Put yet. We're not the to the full wireless Put thing yet. Put back the jack. Put back the jack. Yeah, you know what? That could go for the bar, too. Like, if you had too much to drink and you say, Put back the jack. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it could. Okay, bye, guys. So, is that all you wanted? That's all I wanted. Put back the and jack. And there, there you go. Thanks for nothing. And there she goes. The lovely and talented Lisa Hidalgo, everybody. The Denver 7 meteorologist for the morning news. There you have it. Super profesh. Super. The most profesh. Uh, Imagine you're on holiday, Joseph, and you step into the hotel that you're going to stay in, and instead of the guy at the front desk giving you a key and and heading to the elevator and and you go up to your room, you're actually given a set of keys that look like car keys. Okay. The clerk then says your room is install 20. You giggle, follow the directions leading outside to your sleek driverless hotel room. That's right. It's all about size of about a minibus, but without the seats, without the steering wheel, without the engine. It's all electric. It's a giant transparent panel, basically, stretching the entire length and height of the vehicle that greets you on approach. The panel opens up and you step inside. Inside is everything you'd expect. 
On the left is a couch that also unfolds into a queen-size bed with the push of a button. To the right is a small kitchenette with an electric stove, running water, sink, microwave, a small refrigerator. And behind that is the detachable bathroom module with a toilet, shower, sink. And then you hear a voice. It says, hi there, welcome home. Hungry? You reply, sure. I could go for some Chinese food and beer. That'll be here in six minutes. Want a quick tour of the city, the voice asks. Nah, let's, let's just check out the beach tomorrow, you say. Just then, your room begins to drive itself towards the beach, and a live map displays on one of the side panels showing you where you are going next. You sit back, and you relax. And you're offered the menu of Netflix shows on the other side panel. Exactly six minutes later, the drone lands on your roof and lowers your Chinese food order through a compartment in the ceiling. Arriving at Tower 7, the voice says, you look up at a Lego-like modular skyscraper. Your room docks with an electronic platform and is elevated 30 stories up before slotting into a window-facing position. On one of the side of the panels there, it opens smoothly to reveal a large adjoining living room module. Extra modules are optional and can be requested on demand. An extra bed, private gym, spa, snack bar, office, and more are all available. Various levels of the tower are cafes, restaurants, retail stores, entertainment areas, communal kitchens, laundromats, a gym, and even a movie theater. Luxury living at 30 bucks a night. How does that sound? It sounds like a great Will Smith movie. Doesn't it, though? Now, while you sleep, your driverless hotel room recharges itself, getting ready to take you on an extensive tour of the city and beaches tomorrow. Your week-long vacation experience will be personalized to your precise on-demand preferences that could be a reality in 50 or 60 years as driverless cars meld together with hotel rooms, and they say they would be, they, these things would be called modular driverless rooms. How so an, fascinating so, of an idea. So an RV that drives itself. Pretty much an RV that drives itself, but less RV-esque and more hotel room-esque okay. that will take you around from place to place. Then it docks with this modular building, which will allow it to expand, and then I give you other options for entertainment, restaurants, that sort of thing, let's okay. say overnight. <laughs> we could. Now, since driverless vehicles are simply a room sitting atop an all-electric drivetrain, and a rechargeable battery pack with a, a few extra visual laser radar sensors, they can be configured in any number of ways. It doesn't have to look like a regular car or a regular truck that we are thinking of now because the way the cars are built now, they're designed to have a person in a seat looking forward and then everybody else basically doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. But a driverless vehicle in the future can be configured as a box. I mean, wind resistance, I guess, is still an issue. However... If you're just driving around a city, you don't really need to worry about wind resistance if you're not going over 30 or 35 miles an hour, right? Right. So you could build a big boxy type room that is all open inside that has the beds and the couches and the kitchenette and all that sort of stuff. So it's like an RV, except it doesn't have to look like an RV on the inside. Right. Uh, they, They just don't have to look like a traditional car. I imagine they'll, they'll still need to be somewhat, though, at the higher speeds aerodynamic. But self-driving vehicles opens up endless possibilities to reimagine how vehicles look as and how they operate as a moving room. Maybe uh, they could be a driverless office, driverless boardrooms, uh, the driverless gym. 
The driverless movie theater. The driverless movie theater. The driverless bedroom. Driverless gym sounds terrifying. The driverless bathroom. Mm. The driverless cafe. All cars in 20 years are just bathrooms on wheels. So if you want a Starbucks, instead of running across the street to the Starbucks, the Starbucks could just drive up, you jump on, and then you're in the Starbucks as it maybe takes you to the next place. Maybe the Starbucks driverless Uber kind of concept there. The future's scary, man. The driverless doctor's office. When I can just step out of my work, go to the doctor's office, and then go back to work, and then the driverless office goes to the next patient. Maybe they can see more people that way. Driverless teeth cleaning, all the same thing. Because you're going to a driverless vehicle that's that's configured in a way that is not like a regular vehicle. Mm. Now, these rooms don't need to be in isolation either. They can be dynamic, modular, and interconnected with other driverless rooms via on-demand requests. Tap a button or, or speaker request, and moments later, you could have a, a bathroom or a gym module drive itself to your location and autonomously connect to the office module you're currently working from. The forces of inertia will always remain, so we'd expect that most people would not want to be constantly moving, so these things would need to park somewhere probably. And one of the most efficient options would have them stack vertically in these skyscrapers within cities. These, like, Lego open, You would, if you were just looking at this building, it would just look like a, a framework with these holes that are in it that are then eventually filled by these modular uh, driverless vehicles. Now, immense, uh, they would be huge. They would have to be huge. And it, it would be interesting to see how, how all that would fit together and how it would work. Right. Because various levels could include restaurants or nightclubs, retail stores, entertainment. In, in today's reality, we think of hotels as, as an expensive accommodation intended for a few overnight stays, uh, so hotels and Airbnb accommodations, they're, 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 you're able to charge an expensive fee due to their fixed and high-demand locations within one city. But one huge advantage that these mobile rooms have is that they offer the option to travel regionally while you sleep. So we talked about the bus going between L.A. and, Los, and uh, San Francisco while you sleep. Well, you could do the same thing basically with this hotel room that you could go from Denver to Kansas City in your hotel room as part of a vacation that you are going from city to city, or let's say Dallas to San Antonio, and you're going from city to city, so you get to see some of that, that road, but you're still in your same hotel room, like a cruise boat on the road. I guess that's kind of what an RV is, but it does it all autonomously. That's just it, an RV that drives itself. Although if the RV was taking me from Denver to Kansas City, I'd fire the RV and get a new <laughs> RV to take me back to Denver. Because uh, small cities right now, they, they don't have much of an infrastructure or anything going for it, like Amarillo, Texas, or maybe Kingman, Arizona. Uh, they might be able to use a system like this because, yeah, they have some of those hotels, but designers could really design an entire city from the ground up with this type of infrastructure in mind. What, what There was a movie that I saw recently. Uh, it, it was a Blade Runner movie, Blade Runner. And it had, where it had these apartments that were like shopping or shipping crates. It's like a like, the, like they stack on shipping boats. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you walk in the hallway and you open up your little shipping crate, and it's that's basically the size of it—a nice little box there with all these rooms just just all stacked together. And that's imagine what I would be it would be like, but with a steel frame, so these mobile rooms could be then added wherever there is a space available. My apartment in Statesboro when I was going to school, it was it was similar to that. Where they would build these apartments off site, they would truck them in. 
And then they would have these uh, uh, these big cranes that would pick it up and put it down on the foundation, and then they would put the next one on top of it so it would stack too high. But they were already pre-built, and they just had to basically connect them like you would a Lego piece hmm. and then put uh, – then. Find, you know, attach the roof to it and, and uh, hook up the water and off you go. Well, and I mean, we've seen people converting shipping crates into one-bedroom apartments that then stack on top of each other. There's an entire park in Las Vegas that's made out of old shipping crates that has like 30 or 40 businesses in it. And that's the purpose is to show what you can do with these sort of modular stackable uh, pieces of equipment. And that's similar to what the Hyperloop would be, would be these cr- the, these tubes with these... I guess what crates, not crates, but whatever a, uh, a shipping container of some sort that would either ship people or stuff, mm-hmm. and then off it goes, and or, it goes from one place to another. Right. If the hyperloop's a real thing, of course it's a real thing. Get on it, Musk. He's <laughs> he's he's worried about where his 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 car is. Oh, drifting in space. Well then, I still wish the spaceman was broadcasting right now. I want to know where the spaceman is. I want to know how he's doing. I want to. Why do we have a team of people with telescopes? Why isn't the Hubble tracking the space guy and the car floating out there right now? But really, like you can't set you. You think you're going to build a hyperloop, but you can't even set up a webcam on a guy for three months straight. Get that's out of that's here. floating in space out towards Mars and the rest of the asteroid belt. Musk's a joke. I mean, come on. He didn't even make the top five list of billionaires. It's because he can't get anything done. There you go. <laughs> That's Joseph talking. I would love to work for you, Mr. Musk. <laughs> there you have it. And he, we could take him as a sponsor of the pro, of the podcast. I don't want him. You don't? He'd say he was going to sponsor the podcast, then spend 12 months trying to develop something, and then everybody would forget about it. <laughs> there you go. Well, thanks again for being here as part of the show. Don't forget, you can always contact us at the email at uh, the Gmail account, which is the Driving You Crazy Podcast at Gmail. You have us on Twitter at Denver 7 Traffic. At Joseph Denver 7. So thanks again for being here, and until next time, I'm Jason Libra, the Traffic Guy. I'm voice to tweet advocate Joseph Peters. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring. Happy motoring.